Hello and welcome to this very special four episode mini series for World Gynecologic Oncology Day. Starting on the 20th of September, we will be releasing an episode a week for four weeks. The theme for this year is Dare to Ask, so we'll be asking all the questions sent in by you and getting the answers from four incredible specialists. We have Professor Donald Brennan, who will be covering the surgical side of cancer. We have Dr. Karen Kadu, who will be focusing on genetics with a special interest in BRCA and Lynch syndrome. We have Helen Greeley, who is a psycho-oncologist with the NCCP, and she will be discussing the psychological implications of carrying the BRCA gene and also managing some of the psychological symptoms that can come with early menopause. And we have Louise Comerford, CNS in Hollis Street in St. Vincent's, who will be answering all of our nursing questions. We really hope you enjoy these four episodes. This season is kindly sponsored by CarePlus Pharmacy with all the proceeds being donated to the Emer Casey Foundation. The Emer Casey Foundation was founded in 2006 after the death at a young age of Emer Casey to ovarian cancer. We are so honoured to be a part of this movement to raise awareness of gynaecologic cancers and we hope we can help you find the answers to some of your questions. Good morning, Helen, and welcome to the podcast. We're really looking forward uh, to discussing the psychological impact of cancer in the run-up to World Gynaecologic Oncology Day. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us, especially on your weekend. We really appreciate it. The theme for this year is Dare to Ask. So we have received several questions um, from the public and we're really looking forward to getting them the answers. A lot of the questions are in related to the psychological effect of the BRCA mutation and also the side effects of early menopause. So we might start with that, if that's okay with you. Um, So our first question in is, um, as we know, the menopause can have huge impact on a woman's quality of life. Some of the women listening are unable to take HRT as it may be contraindicated. Some women have mentioned that they find themselves feeling very teary and much more irritable. Do you have any advice on how um, people can deal with these distressing side effects? So I suppose the first thing I want to say about that, first of all, thank you for asking me to do the podcast. I'm delighted to try and help out the women who are, are struggling with this, this kind of event in their lives. So I think the first thing to say is that when you're diagnosed with BRCA gene, from a psychological point of view, it's a huge shock to most women when that happens. And you know, I suppose it, it, there's, there's no indication that is going to happen. So it's it's often completely out of the blue. And I guess there's so many things attached to that, like obviously the shock and the, the grief. And also at its core in a way of being diagnosed with the BRCA gene, uh, initially I think it's seen as like a, a kind of a loss event because we all live our lives by a set of assumptions you know, that we're in control, that things are going to be the way we expect them to be, that life is predictable and then out of the blue comes this you know, kind of bolt from the blue that uh, that you're carrying a BRCA gene which potentially may affect, may affect not only your quality of life but also things like you know start you to worry about what if something happens to me or what if I passed on to my children or so there are a lot of what ifs going through their head at that time so it's very reasonable to expect that uh, women would you know be very upset emotionally and I think so what I'm really saying is I think it's a normal response and people have to keep best so be kind to themselves and be compassionate to like their best friend so if your best friend was diagnosed with BRCA gene and they were struggling you would say you, you wouldn't give it out to them saying you, know, you should be better you'd say listen be kind to yourself the first thing is have self self compassion because you're you are being landed with a very um you know a, a, a life event that requires a lot of coping. I think that's very important. And obviously some of the side effects, like I mean, I would have talked to many women over the years in terms of counselling and support, and they would be talking things like night sweats and perhaps 
at a very early age, you know, all the things that happen, fatigue, you know, kind of body image. There are so many things associated with kind of early menopause that are very, very difficult for women to cope with. So I think it's it's very important to realise this is normal. I think seeking out, talking to other women who may be going through the same experience is a very important part of this journey because there will never be anything like talking to somebody else who knows exactly what you're talking about because they themselves are experiencing it. So I, I would say to anybody listening to the podcast, you know, look around your own area, your own region. Are there any online support groups? I mean, the good thing about COVID, there were lots of difficult things. One of the good things is there's so much more online support now. Be careful who you, you go to for support because some of the online stuff you can here can be very distressing as well. So you need to be careful about like vetting who you're going to talk to because and, and the other thing is you know know your own truth you know know what works for you. Sometimes odd things work for people. Uh, you know that somebody else mightn't work for. So everyone's their own expert. So I think that's really important. I think as well. Um, you know I do a lot of work in the area of grief and loss, and I think one of the things I'm really struck by is that at its core, being diagnosed with early menopause is a grief experience. So all the normal things that you go through in grieving, like shock, anger, distress you know, sadness, they're all completely normal, but they also have a lifetime. And so it's very much like a phase, a phased approach. So you might be, but today you could be very angry about something and tomorrow that might be there. So just realise, you know, this is a life experience. And what you've got to do is look, what can I control? I can't control the fact that I'm in early menopause, but what other things can I do to make myself better? So can I take a bit more exercise? You know, can I be a bit more careful about my sleeping pattern? Can I kind of, you know, can I, can I adapt? So, so, for example, I just worked with a lady there recently who said got terrible effects from early menopause. And one thing she was really not doing was realising I needed to have a nap during the day. And she was in a lucky position that she could do that. And actually building that into her, or just her daily routine has made a huge difference. So very simple things sometimes can really help. That's brilliant, Helen. That's such practical advice. Um, thank you so much. And I suppose, as you said there, yeah, going going into premature menopause can bring on a lot of emotions um, and fear. Is there good resources available that you know that people can can avail of at the moment? Well, I'm, I'm, I suppose the, the first thing I say is, you know, you know, I suppose I'm struck by the, the, the kind of title of this year's thing, which is their task. I think because this is very much, you know, the part of the body that's kind of, kind of concerned with intimacy. I think a lot of women are afraid to say how they feel and they have their, their expectations of themselves are high and they think it's not okay to be struggling with some of these kind of things so I would really encourage anyone listening to this podcast to not be afraid to ask your medical team first of all your GP tell them that you're struggling so there's nothing there's no shame in that there's no fear in it so I think that's the first thing is, is I, I suppose as a psychologist I come from, the, from a kind of a, a belief system that says you know um you know we were often afraid to talk and say we think you know, it's not okay to kind of you might be carrying things like it shouldn't be this difficult, but I should be okay. And one thing cancer patients and women with BRCA gene often do, and men as well, is that they often compare themselves badly to other people and say, you know, look at her, she's absolutely fine. Why aren't I like that? It's a completely unique journey to you. So whatever works for you is important to, to do. So if you're in, so obviously, of course, we'll go back to your medical team and tell them about what you're struggling with in terms of physical symptoms. But also look around your area. Is there a local cancer support centre? And we, cancer support centres operate on the basis that um, they're open to everybody affected by cancer. So even if you're, you haven't got cancer, but you're carrying the BRCA gene and you're, you're, you, you have to have treatment because of that, perhaps your, your, your breast removed or your ovaries removed, 
and go into your local cancer support centre because that's exactly what they're there for. And then you've got lots of online stuff, particularly the Marie Keating Foundation, fantastic resource and really work hard in this area, but lots of other services. So there are lots of things available. But the most important thing is don't be on your own with this struggle that you're in because it is a big struggle. And don't be afraid to say, I'm really struggling here. Because as soon as I was speaking to someone the other day like in, in our centre in Galway and like he just said, he told me something about his life. He said, I never told this to anyone before. And I'm so glad I told you because I was carrying around this huge burden that I, and just like a weight slipped it off to me. And I know that probably sounds like a very kind of, you know, um, amazing claim to make. But in fact, when you say something out loud, it loses its potency over your life. So saying something out loud and naming it is really important. So I would say to anybody listening to this, don't be on your own. That's the most important thing. So look around your area and there, there will be help available. Thanks, Helen. I suppose another thing that um, women have reported that they feel it really embarrassed by speaking about intimacy issues with their clinician or at their medical appointments, and they can often feel very alone in this. Um, do you have any kind of advice for women that are struggling with this, and would you advise them to speak to their medical team about this? So I've been working in the area of cancer support for the last, well, directly for the last 20 years, but before that, kind of in an indirect way in my own practice. But I think this is one of the biggest things that's happened and one of the best things that happened is that there's certainly the stigma around the whole sexual intimacy. You know, I mean, even, you know, women would feel like, you know, I, I shouldn't be, this is kind of an add-on in a way, like I'm not, it's not okay for me to even want to be intimate or not intimate with my partner or whoever it is. So I think it's really important that you actually name it and to just, and I also would say this to medics, you need to ask, you need to ask for someone's getting on with this stuff because sometimes we're embarrassed to ask or we're afraid to ask the question please ask the question to your patients. You know, how is that whole part of your life? How is your relationship in intimacy-wise? You know, how do you feel about your own body? I mean, a lot of women would say to me, like, I don't feel like I'm a real woman because I lost my breasts. And I feel like, you know, how could I possibly be attracted to my partner? Because I'm I'm not the person that they hooked up with originally. I think all of these things, they have huge psychological impacts on women and their partners as well. So I think it's very important to actually say, you know, that, because there is help out there there are lots of programs uh, that even we run in cancer support centres that you know, are, are to be helped something like um, you know it's kind of how do you thrive after this how do you actually come back to living your life in the way you want to live it and intimacy like we're in the islands so we all need other people and we need to be kind of you know realising that it's okay to need that and we need to seek it out and we really look for it so I would say please talk to your medical team your cancer support team, your psychologist or counsellor, whoever you talk to, and name this issue because it's just part of who we are. Like we, I think it's because a lot of us have grew up maybe in the era where it's like, you know, the, the intimacy thing is still kind of taboo. It shouldn't be like that. So I think it's very important to say this and to normalise it. Mm-hmm. We hear people say an awful lot in, in the day wards and in the hospital in general, like, oh, I'm lucky to be here and I'm being treated like I should just be grateful. But so that's why I think it's really important to have these conversations. So thanks a million for that. And um, another thing I suppose that came up an awful lot when our in our questions was the this kind of feeling of agitation associate, associated with like treatments and um, just, I suppose, just a baseline agitation that women were feeling. And um, I suppose their frustration with like it impacting on their relationships with their family and children and just their tolerance in general. Do you have any advice for um, people that are feeling this? 
So again, I suppose my first uh, response to that is that it's completely normal and people are agitated. Like your whole world's turned upside down. So of course, and then you may have side effects of treatment. So that's an add-on to that. But I, I think it's really important to, to kind of say how you're feeling to your partner and even to your children. I mean, it's, it's okay to say it to your children. You know, Emmy's going through a bit of a tough time at the moment. I'm on the special treatment and things are a bit different. So like, you know, I, I might be as kind of kind of calm and saying saying as I normally would be and like you know and, and this will pass it will get better so it's, it's to be hopeful that things will get better because we don't have hope about things it's very actually benign so hope is a really important thing but I think as well it's also to um kind of you know take time out for yourself during the day if you can at all so like take time away like know your trigger points so you know that your children are coming from school at three o'clock and you know that you're having a bad day this is a really difficult time maybe trying to get homework done maybe trying to get a dinner ready whatever the stuff is going on in the family or if you know that certain people set you off maybe to say the wrong thing to you or there are certain people kind of they're experts on your uh struggles and may say the stuff that's completely wrong in two years like watch your trigger points and avoid them if you can or, or prepare for them saying i know that I should do nothing else when the children come to school except do the specific things with them because I can't multitask at that time. So know your own daily routine is really important. Maybe, you know, maybe you need to change. I think a physical exercise is really important. So I think maybe trying to build in a time in your day for 20 minutes, a half an hour, you take a walk. Apart from the fact you're walking and it's physically good for you, you also get time in your head and your own. That's really important. And I also want to say this, like sometimes people really are struggling with kind of the effects of, of what's happened to them. But like some well, some of the women I work with say to me, you know, I, I, I'm able to reframe what happened. So this is a huge impact on my life. But actually, when I look at it the other way, I say I'm getting a chance actually avoid getting cancer in the future. Even though I've had to have my ovaries or my womb or my my um my breasts off and it's a huge impact. I'm actually really glad that I'm I've been given the chance to actually do something about this because it's prevention rather than cure, and that's better because I, I was carrying the, I could have been carrying the back of the team and know nothing about it. So in some ways, we can reframe it to have it more positive. It doesn't doesn't mean it's all hunky dory, it's all grand, it's a great story, but it does mean that it gives you kind of you can balance out your thinking about it a bit. So I think that's really important to kind of you know to, to realize that. And also, I think thing, very simple things sometimes like journaling. Really important. So keeping a journal, keeping a diary, putting stuff down on paper changes the impact of what you're being told. And so it's, it kind of reduces um, the kind of control it might have over your life. Try and reframe it so you say to yourself, how can I control this thing rather than it controlling me? So you might control it fully every day, but you might be able to control it some days or some bits of some days. So I think it's very important to do that. The other thing that kind of causes agitation I think, for a lot of women is um, you know, this whole thing about just the physical side effects. And some of that's unavoidable, obviously, we know because of the treatment. So it's to, it's to control what you can't control and the uncontrollables, you just have to manage them. The retraining your thoughts is it's an amazing skill to have, but it's one that you, you need to learn and it can be so difficult when you're in the height of it sometimes. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, this, like reframing your thoughts, like it's such a, um, I don't know, like it's such a huge kind of quest to make and it's actually a psychological skill and the people who do courses on it do it like it's part of what we call cognitive therapy and cognitive therapy is where you really look at the impact your thoughts can have and and also i think it's a really good um thing to really to remember which is your thoughts are not facts so sometimes we treat our thoughts as absolute facts that are definitely going to happen i mean that's very much related to like fear of recurrence in cancer or what's going to happen if my cancer comes back like everybody who gets cancer from the 
very mild stage one, you know, which was a, a lot of hope about when it's caught very early and, you know, the doctor said, you you're caught really early and it's going to be grand. We're, we're very confident. Right up to like, you know, stage four cancer where the story might be a bit different. I think everybody who's got cancer worries about recurrence or to why community cancer support centres are so busy is because living with the fear of recurrence of cancer, because we know cancer is an illness that can recur. And for that reason, it's a lot of power over our lives. So fear of cancer recurrence is a very common, a very normal response. But actually strategies around that are really important for people, like living in the present moment, like looking at like, what are my triggers? What triggers my anxiety around when I get my cancer back? And some of that's normal. You, we can never, anxiety is a natural occurring um, kind of phenomenon in all our lives. We, we worry. We're, 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 we're wired to worry. That's the way we're hot wired, unfortunately. But it's actually, we can manage your anxiety in this part of 20. We're not trying to get rid of it completely. So we can never get to a point where we say, you will never have anxiety about recurrence again. That is, is a fallacy. What we can do is we can help you to manage. So how are we going to manage the fears around recurrence? So living in the present moment, learning relaxation and kind of meditation skills are really important. Um, the whole thing about, you know, kind of... Uh, bringing your back, back. Am, I, am I in the right place? Am I getting the right treatment? Is it, am I tolerating the treatment? Things like groundless. Whereas when you're anxious, you're off in the future. You're living in that future where it's all gone wrong. Are you living in the past where you decide something because of it? So it's living in the present moment, I suppose a different way of saying mindfulness is really important. And being mindful, saying I'm here now, I'm okay. I can ground myself, you know, what I'm doing today is actually really, really important. I don't know how I got on that topic, but anyway, it's, it's no, fear, um, it moves seamlessly to our next question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think fear of recurrence is a huge issue for a lot of people. Yeah, that's one thing. Um, one thing with the fear of reoccurrence we can often forget about is the loved ones. I think involved in the situation as well, they can be really afraid of the reoccurrence, but then need to still support the person that's actually been had the diagnosis. So, do you have any support, any advice for the for the loved ones? I suppose on the on the other side. So all the way back, if we go back to the cancer strategy in 2017, the current one that we're using now, it's very careful to say that cancer patients and their families need support and need the services that are available because we know the cancer not just impacts the individual, but actually the whole family in different ways. So, and then because the BRCA gene, if you're carrying it, you may have guilt associated with that because you think, it's like, am I going to pass this on to my children? And I'm going to tell my children that I'm carrying it and that they will have to get tested. So that's a huge, like, impact on the family so we're very careful to always offer services to patients and their families when we're talking about the services that, that are available and I think families really need I suppose I come from the kind of belief that you know, I think it's really important for younger children and um, that they know what's going on because children really don't do well when they're kept out of the loop too much so you can tell your children in a very simple way is what you tell them and using very simple language but and also make you know, the Point to them. If something changes, I'll tell you. So if something else happens, I'll tell you that too. But uh, today everything is fine, and it's all going exactly as we wanted to go. So I think it's really, really important to talk to your family, and also to ask your family to make allowances for you, and to get them support. So every cancer support centre in Ireland offers support to families as well. That's really important because people sometimes don't realise I can go in there and get a have a chat with somebody, or I can go on the phone to someone, and that's really, really important because we know families are hugely impacted by cancer. And that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's again, the last event. Things are not the way we thought it would be. There's a, a change in circumstance. 
there's maybe visits to hospitals, there's visits to doctors, there's somebody, uh, my mum is kind of, kind of being a perfectly um, reasonable person to be sometimes very unreasonable and you know, and I, I can't keep her happy or just see from my point of view, all that kind of normal stuff that goes on. So I think it's really important to say to families, you too are struggling with this baby and you too need support. So I think, to, again, seek out that support if you can. And also there are a lot of family support groups, like a lot of, we, we want, for example, we want a, a a patient support group, we also in a family support group where we get families to come together to talk about the experience with them. And the other thing is that in a cancer diagnosis or even the packaging setup that happens for some people, it's really important to realise the patient is minding the family. The family is trying to mind the patient. And so they're all minding each other and maybe they're not saying how they really feel about things because they don't they say, I don't want to upset the person more by telling this stuff. So I think that's why dialogue and communication are so important. Uh, and, you know, sometimes um, people think I'm the only one who feels like this, but actually they're not. And when they realise that, that's again a huge relief. Mm. I think that's why the, the support groups are really, really valuable, aren't they? Because I suppose you get to realise that it's not just you kind of feeling that way and, uh, you can find people that know what you're going through and support each other in that way. And I, I think the whole, I mean, I think support groups have one huge advantage over individual counselling or therapy, which is that they can normalise the response because you're talking to other people who, who know exactly what you're talking about. And sometimes that's our job as cancer support centres and psychologists is to say, you know, what you're having is a completely normal response. And actually, you don't, you're not going mad. You're not, you know, you're not losing really yourself. This is completely normal. And even knowing that can be really, really powerful for someone who thinks, like, why am I thinking like this all the time? Why is my head back going around in circles? Why can't I stop thinking about what will I do if I get my cancer back? So normalising that and giving people strategies is what really we're about in terms of trying to support people. And then I know, I know, we, well, that I know of, I know there's a support group in um, the Marie Keaton Foundation that's uh, directed towards people that carry the BRCA gene. Um, is there any support groups or I suppose specific services that you know that help with the pre-menopause or menopause symptoms that people experience? It just seems to be, I suppose, so prevalent and huge at the moment. And I don't, as far as I know, there is no um, specific group in Ireland apart from Marie Keating who does that but I suppose the good thing about the Marie Keating Foundation now is they're doing a lot of online support and so wherever you are in the country if you've got a telephone or Wi-Fi you can talk to somebody I think the Irish Cancer Society helplines well it's very important and support line there is also a kind of a resource to have but I also think talking to I think talking to oncology nurses is really important actually and I'm lucky enough in, in Cancer Care West where I work kind of some of the week we have two oncology trained nurses there and the amount of support they give because they have time. That's their job is to give cancer support for, for, for patients and families. And sometimes just talking to like somebody, a nurse can be really powerful for a lot of people and they can kind of know stuff, you know, simple strategies that actually work for people. I think that's really important to like, seek out. I know CNSs in hospitals won't thank me for saying this because they're already very busy. But I think even a short conversation with somebody can be really powerful for a lot of women with online support. A lot of, a lot of our uh, clients who have the BRCA gene, they often um, source support from outside the country online support groups from outside of Ireland, maybe in the UK or Europe or the US. But again, with a word of caution, you get the right group. Yeah. Because that's important. Absolutely. But I suppose one thing myself and Anne-Marie tend to see the huge psychological impacts tend to happen for patients when they finish treatment. Um, and I think a lot of people aren't expecting it to hit them so hard at the end of treatment because 
sometimes it's that it, it should be they feel like it should be a happy time because they've just completed treatment or um do, do you think early intervention is important so I so you mean treatment for for um you mean treatment for the bracket or for treatment generally just treatment in general really just okay. patients finishing cancer treatment so one of the things I work on with the National Cancer Control Programme is development of an integrated pathway between acute hospitals and community support, primary primary support or, or primary care or, or community cancer support centres. And the reason I do that, and I'm really passionate about it, is that provide a euro for every time someone says to me, I didn't know where to go when I finished my active treatment. I didn't know what was available out there. So there's, there's been a huge um, emphasis on helping patients to realise it's after your treatment that actually sometimes the psychological stuff really kicks in. When you're going through treatment for cancer, you've got so many appointments, you're in a bubble and you're very held there. You're very supportive because you're going in, you're meeting the team, perhaps every fortnight, every three weeks, within their chemo regime. Uh, you have a surgical team if you've had surgery or radiotherapy team. So you're part of a very big system where you feel very secure and you know what's happening. And then suddenly somebody says to you, well, that's it, your treatment's done. We're very happy with you. Off you go, come back in three months or six months or whatever the story is. And that's when the, the majority of of our clients appear at our door in terms of cancer support in the community because they suddenly think, what just happened to me there? Like, I just, did I just go through cancer treatment? Am I safe now? So all those questions start to bubble up, but fear of recurrence, the changes in my life, like why am I so fatigued? Um, you know, why, why if, if, I'm, if I'm so grand, why am I not feeling a lot better? So there are a myriad of questions and that's when it really kicks in psychologically. So the most patients we see in the community actually are post-treatment. We certainly see people at time of diagnosis and when they're going through the treatment. But the real cliff hanger for a lot of people is when they've stopped their active treatment. So again, this is completely normal. I think signposting is really important in this regard. So um, I'm delighted actually because one of my colleagues in the, colleagues in the NCCP uh, uh, with, with the Irish Cancer Society has just devised a, a new program called ASIS, which is Life After Cancer Enhancing Survival. And um, and that's a signposting service, but also highlights what are the likely things we're going to meet. So very much like, you know, the pre-chemo workshops that happen uh, before people start chemo, this is a post-treatment workshop that's going to be rolled out nationally and they're doing a pilot project at the moment. But I think it's really important because it highlights what the likely things are, what's, what's likely as a cancer survivor, what, uh, what, what things would I meet like. So you know, how do I go back to work? Um, how do I look after my physical health, exercise, diet, and then the psychological and emotional impact and signposting people to the local cancer support centres. So I think it's to normalise that response to realise, yes, my treatment, my actual treatment physically, med medical treatment is over, but now my journey starts because now I have to live, I have to adapt. And adaptation, we know kind of from all the literature, doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. And it happens over several months and for some people even longer periods of time. So getting used to being having had cancer and then living with it again well and not letting it define you, they're all jobs that take, take a bit of time. Sometimes we can do them on our own. And the reality is about only about 50% of, of cancer patients require kind of outside psychological help to get through their cancer. The majority of people actually with themselves or supporting their own family or their friends or the community work 
colleagues. But we do know that there are a substantial number of people who do require balance to go and support. So that process of meditation is really important. You're getting used to a change in your life. And just like, you know, when we're born, and we have to, it takes us a while to get used to the change and then to be independent. And so this is exactly like that. You have to learn, relearn your life and relearn, oh, well, what can I do now that's different? And the really enhancing or but the really rewarding thing for someone like me is, is, is helping someone make that journey and really kind of watching them kind of, you know, come to terms with what happened to them and go on and live their lives in the way as they want to live it. And I know, I can say this with certainty because I've, I've seen lots and lots of cancer patients. The majority of people actually do manage to go back and live their life quite well and enjoy life the way it is. So it's a hopeful story. It's not a, it's not a you know, it's not a doom and gloom story. It's like it, people, the majority of people do learn to do that. But we know there are, um, a significant number of people who do require ongoing support and that's all there now I mean that's so the integrated patient pathway which is what we're really working on is to, is to make sure that people don't fall off that cliff is that they have somewhere to go um, and they don't have to wait for that three or six month checkup that they can be signposted to what supports are available either online or face to face or you know by video or whatever so it's, it's a, that's a good thing about COVID I've said that already but there is there are some similar lines to, to that cloud like Last March 2020, our centre in Galway was not doing any uh, online or our remote support, and now it's a blended service. So we have probably 50 50, 50 face to face, 50 face to face, and 50% online or by telephone. That would never happen. We talked about it for years. We opened us to do it. We had to do it. Those, the same, everyone can support centre in the country is in the same boat. So, like, it's been really good in that way. That's great, and thanks. Probably so talk, I probably talked too long. No, it's brilliant. It's so good. I think you know, listening to you there, it's something that we can get better at as well. When we're kind of discharging patients when they're finishing up treatment with us, is is telling them where to go and direct them where to go. You know, because I think sometimes you can. And I'm just thinking of myself personally. Like I haven't always told people where to go afterwards, but definitely now from doing this podcast, I've realised and speaking to people how important it is that they have some form of follow up when they, when, if it's not phys, like their physical follow up with the with their medical team. Can I can I just say this is it's really important. So there are about forty seven cancer support centres around Ireland, you know, operating in different ways. Like some of them are full time, some part-time um, and they all have different models but in the NCCP we spent the last two or three years working on the best practice guidance for centres and that is partly obviously that's for centres themselves so they can work as a network and help each other but also to give confidence to um, people like yourselves working in acute hospitals when you want to refer somebody on signposting to a cancer support centre you can say we know this centre is a good centre because it's following the best practice guidance so that joined up thinking again the integrated patient pathway so the patients have a clear pathway when they, they're in the hospital and get treatment they're out back to their own communities where in fact any audits that we've ever done or looked at one clear message we got from patients that they want to be treated in their own communities they don't want to be travelling long distances to get treated so I think that's really important and that's why the network of cancer support centres around the country is so so important. And Helen, I suppose, do you do you think there's a need or a scope for uh, to educate healthcare workers a little bit more about the psychological impact cancer can have? Oh, absolutely, and I'm really glad to be part of. So Lisa Mary works with me in the in the NCCP, and and she's our I suppose our overall nurse education, and she's 
just rolling out at the moment as a pilot a two-day nurse education program uh, to kind of educate nurses who are really pivotal. I mean, I, I name nurses there, but I think they are so, so important to the patient journey in cancer. And um, so she's rolling out that, that education program that's looking exactly at educating nurses about what is the psychological impact of cancer? How do you recognise the signs and symptoms when someone's really struggling beyond what's normal? When is the right time to refer somebody on for more support? And then the whole thing about this post-treatment you know, that that's mentioned early on that they begin to intervene much earlier and normalise it so the people aren't afraid to say you know what I'm struggling a bit here and I need a bit of help so I think all of those, those initiatives that have been taken in the NCCP over the last number of years are really really important mm, That's brilliant I think that's something I'd love to do it sounds yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a really good programme it's been um, she's only with Frances Neville um, who was working until more now she's working at the NCC people again she's a nurse educator and this is going to be a really important program of course the big thing is getting nurses released to do it <laughs> different story altogether so I wonder there's a story <laughs> <laughs> you probably know all about that yeah yeah well Helen listen thank you so much this has been really enjoyable and I think um, I think one of the main things I got from what you were saying is that like a lot of the things people were reporting and sending their questions in and that you said it's really normal to to feel what you're feeling and I think that even that in itself like you said it's just really beneficial yeah. is there um is there anything I suppose that we left out of the questions with relation to um I suppose bracket and menopause and gynae oncology that you think is important to mention so I just might say something about the guilt that people have because I think that's a feature that comes up for us a lot in terms of individual counseling so just as like you know, a lot of people who have the BRCA gene are really guilty about being that pesticide out of my children. And I suppose one of the ways we kind of work with people about that is say, yes, you did, but you always pass on lots of good things to your children. Nobody knows they're going to get born with, born with the BRCA gene. You didn't do it purposely. So there's no, there should be no guilt about, like, we. I think it's okay to be guilty when we know we is purposely did something that was damaging to ourselves or somebody else. But this is not the case with the BRCA gene. So it's just to really reassure people that, like, the guilt is normal, but you also must reframe it and say, okay, like, I didn't do this. You know, it's not something I actively set out to do. And the thing is, again, the reframing I talked about earlier on, you know, reframe it so that it means you would tell us not to address these issues. Your children also will be tested for the BRCA gene. Hopefully, they won't be carrying it, but if they are, they would also be able to get treatment for it. So, you know, it's an early warning system. And you know, we're lucky because lots of cancers have no early warning system. And I say that, I don't say that in a, in a smart way, but you know, the BRCA gene can be detected through testing, and that's a, that can only be a good thing to prevent something. So, I think just to be kind again to themselves, the people who are carrying the BRCA gene, and they would say that it's not their fault they're carrying it because guilt can be a very damaging emotion. If you're very guilty, it can you know, paralyze you to do something that you remind yourself. So I just, I just mentioned that as well. Brilliant, Helen. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Answers for Cancers podcast. Please share this podcast with anybody who you think it might help. Also, if you can like and subscribe, it lets people know we're here. You can alternatively contact us on Instagram at the answers for cancers underscore podcast. And if you have any questions on anything that we discussed today, please email us at the answers for cancers podcast at gmail.com or you can DM us on Instagram.